Hey there, and welcome to the Pink Elephant Podcast. Now, I don't know if you've ever realized this, but I have never had any advertisements on this podcast. And it's not that I haven't had the opportunity to, but as a commitment to both you and God, I deliberately do not profit from this podcast. I've done this on purpose. It's so that you never have to doubt my agenda in teaching this kind of material. You can be sure that I am doing it purely because I believe it's what God wants you to hear. And also, it means there's never any conflict of interest in what I speak about. That's how I can be so raw, because I'm really not worried about whether people like what I have to say or if it makes me popular, because I will never get paid for it anyway. What all of this does mean, though, is that I do have to work, which I do gladly. So this month, I'm being really honest here, I've had a particularly busy schedule and I have a cracker of an episode in the pipeline, but I didn't want to risk the quality and significance of this message because I had to meet my time frame of having a once a month episode. And I've been told that continuity is apparently key to this industry. So instead of giving you my usual pink elephant content, I've decided to still give you something, but something slightly different. I'm giving you a free audio version of a chapter of my latest book. That's right. Deep Faith, Resilient Faith, which I released sometime last year and is something that I'm currently doing interviews about right now anyway. Well, I've decided to give you that for free, just one chapter, right? So, and I do intend to put this into an audiobook at some point in the future. We'll work out when I can do that. But anyway, I still assure you that everything in this episode is just as thought provoking as my usual stuff. So you will not be disappointed. I, I can guarantee you that. But anyway, hopefully you enjoy it. I would love to hear your feedback. And um, you can, of course, purchase the full book if you are truly challenged by what is in there off my website. Alrighty, have fun. Deep Faith, Resilient Faith. Chapter 1, Resilience in Faith. It is kind of strange to read the New Testament book of Thessalonians in which Paul is dealing with a bunch of Christians that have decided they need not do anything in life since Christ is returning soon. It was about 2,000 years ago when that was written. We are now more than 2,020 years post-Christ, and he still isn't here. Every generation seems to have its signs and predictions that suggest the time might be up, but nothing has ultimately happened yet. Could we really be blamed for having complacency over the final days? It has been in excess of 738,000 days since Christ. Surely we can't maintain that level of urgency societally for two millennia. Look, I don't know. There are those who declare that Christ is coming now based on current world events. But despite what we discern about the times, God has directed us to be ready. There are a few things that I dare say have worried me about the state of faith in the body of Christ, including my own, and what we know about that day to come. Whilst many do believe COVID is a sign of the nearing end, the question of our readiness seems less of a discussion point. Matthew 24 verses 9 to 10 says, Then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers, and many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Firstly, we are told that believers will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. 
Many believers are experiencing this kind of treatment already. Around the globe, the persecuted church has been silently suffering for the gospel for decades. But for the average Christian in the Western world, this is not something we have ever really had to face. We certainly do not have the popularity that we once enjoyed, but it is still quite a gap in comprehension to imagine arrest, persecution and murder on account of our faith compared to now. Secondly, we are told that we will be hated. This is already partly true. Christians are not exactly a liked subset of the population. In fact, we are often interpreted to be the ones that hate, which God knows we are guilty of. Our response to this hatred depends on our own specific journey. In some cases, we have escaped so far into the Christian community that we don't have to associate with the outside world. In other cases, we try to argue and debate with those who oppose us, hoping that understanding might lessen their dislike of us. And in other cases, we try to soften the scriptures and focus on the aspects of faith that are more palatable. I don't know which response is right, but we certainly haven't always considered that the hate and rejection the world feels towards us collectively may simply be a sign that we are getting closer to the day he returns. Thirdly, we are told that many will turn away from Jesus. Yep, again, that's already happening. Sadly, it is hard to tell whether the mass exodus of believers is a rejection of the not-so-modern church that is not necessarily moving with the needs of the next generation, or whether, again, this is a sign that Jesus is coming back soon. And lastly, it tells us that believers will betray and hate each other. This is a sad state to contemplate since love was always supposed to be at the centre of the Christian community. Having written a book all about disillusionment and journeyed with many people in that space, I can't even imagine what kind of brokenness this betrayal and hatred will create or is creating. With such a future state approaching us, as Jesus described, we will require the protection, love and support of the Christian community more than ever but instead we may find betrayal and hatred. Whatever the case may be, when we are called to be ready for his return, by default it implies that we are also ready for everything that will be thrown at us when his return is imminent. Whether that is hate, arrest, persecution, murder, betrayal from the Christian family and the temptation to hate each other. All of this worries me though because I'm not sure we have the kind of depth in our faith as a Christian society in the Western world, to handle all that we are told will come to pass. And this isn't some random verse that we can't afford to ignore. It was spoken by Jesus. It is mentioned in three out of the four books in the New Testament. At this point right now, we are very attached to our lifestyle. And because we can pursue our faith in relative comfort, even with the changes COVID brought, we haven't had to consider whether we would stick to it were we in a life-threatening situation. And let's be real honest, some of us can't even handle being a little disliked, let alone rejected and hated as Jesus described. We are jumping through hoops, working really hard just to be accepted by our Christian peers and our non-believing friends. Never to think that there may come a day when we will have to choose whom we are ultimately accepted by, our grey way of living will suddenly become painfully black and white and not by our own choosing. 
being hated to the point of arrest, persecution and murder is going to be really hard and counterintuitive when our MO has been to keep people happy. Will our churches be able to handle this unlife-giving message? Will they be able to tell the truth even though it might change the number of people that turn up to church each week? Or will it be too late as believers who were convinced that Jesus should always build you up walk away looking for a more positive message? What will we do when feel-good Christianity is no longer relevant? No one knows when he will return, but clearly mankind is not ready yet. I'm not ready, I declare as I sit in my comfortable chair with my big-screened Mac. And this is the time to be getting ready to have a faith that is deep enough and solid enough that we will recognise the times we are in and endure it. Because who will turn and who will stay? It is of utmost urgency that we become stronger and more resilient believers. Resilience level. Resilience has been studied to death and I have no intention of extrapolating it further or adding anything to the already full body of work. We want to be stronger, to be able to cope with the many hardships in life and bounce back well. But our faith and the depth of our convictions also have a resilience level. In a general sense, when we face something unexpected, either faith in Jesus gets stronger and the relationship with him gets deeper or faith takes a hit. As much as we would all like to believe we would never give up on God, most of us do have limitations on what we are willing to endure for Christ. In the modern world where we are accustomed to the kind of self-help Christianity that tells us God intends for us to live a prosperous life, we are somehow able to believe that message and still accommodate the words of Paul. We don't even realise that we are reading the letters standing on the words of someone whose values most likely opposed and confronted our present age. A man who would probably consider much of what we contend with an utter distraction. It is natural and normal for our faith to go through stages and changes, but if we are still continuing to follow the spiritual formation journey that God is continually leading us on, even with its ups and downs, we will end up with a better faith, a more resolute faith, a faith that loves God more than it did before, which is more often than not the crux of the matter. In light of the painful disillusionment I went through several years ago and the severe, potentially life-threatening phobia I went through in 2020 and the season of bordering panic attacks whilst I confronted my own sense of failure in 2021, While not painting a very great picture of myself, I am not ashamed because these three seasons were the catalyst for the kind of faith I deep down have always desired, the type of faith that nourishes my soul to such a degree that I might just be able to endure anything. The same difficulties that would have crucified my confidence 10 years ago have been the very things that have stared me in the face today. Yet, I do not fear as I once did. Rejection, judgment, financial hardship, the fear of death, uncertainty, vulnerability, these are but a few of my recent companions. Initially, they were threats. Now, they are simply bystanders. 
all because God revealed to me the priority of resilience in my faith. I am meant to go through hardships, not simply survive them. When you have tasted the fruits of a resilient faith, no amount of oversaturated, sugary, prosperity gospel candy could compare. Having once espoused the values of a prosperity gospel without fully understanding it to be so, I never realized that there was an alternative. Until I was stripped of everything I once relied on to define my own personal prosperity, and what I discovered instead was that every trial is intended to grow us, not confound our existing theology. But of course, trials do confound the prosperity gospel because it demonstrates very quickly that victory is not the goal of faith. We are already victorious in Christ. Resilience is the goal. This is why Paul repeated over and over again, stand firm. Because evidently, standing firm in our faith, not our opinions and doctrines, but the exercising of faith, is incredibly hard to do especially when the intention is to stand firm because of love and for love. There are many Christians standing firm today in resistance to the surrounding moral differences. On the contrary, it is much easier to stand firm out of a sense of moral rightness. It is much harder to stand firm because you love God and love your neighbours, especially when your neighbours resist you and everything you stand for. Consequently, this is my renewed perspective. I'm not interested in having a prosperous faith that blesses me with external comforts and security. I'm interested in a resilient faith that can hold me steadfastly in the hands of God, even when I have no idea where I'm going nor where my next paycheck will come from. I'm not pursuing prophetic words that inspire or encourage me. I'm pursuing an inner framework that doesn't need my emotions to be oriented a certain way to keep walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death or upon the clouds in glory. I'm not attracted to having a good life accompanied by creature comforts and wealth, but instead deepening my understanding of the nature of this good God who causes me to rejoice and wonder at even a moment's consideration of his goodness. I don't want to give my tithes and offerings as a selfishly motivated act for my own future surplus. I want to give my all, everything that is within me, good and bad to God, as an offering, ensuring that no part of me is left inaccessible to his view and his moulding. Because when you have a resilient faith, you don't even need some vague promise of prosperity. God is the only promise you desire to need. A resilient faith in God is sufficient and it is a better preparation for the coming times as Jesus described. Firstly, let's debunk some myths and barriers. Our attachments. As always, I am preaching to myself. Having just moved interstate and now occupying a rented old house versus our bought renovated one, I am again faced with my own hypocrisy. I want to live a life of complete abandon where should God call me to Syria tomorrow, I would have virtually nothing to pack because I have not amassed comforting material possessions. But instead, I have beautified our rooms in an effort to overshadow the peeling paint that makes me feel icky when I notice it. 
I loathe my middle classness. I'm so mad at my parents for wanting to provide me with all those creature comforts they couldn't have. It's not their fault, I know. Such is the heart of every parent to give and provide a life without challenge and hardship. Frustratingly, we have no idea. We don't think about how attached we are to this world and this life, nor do we consider how much we pursue comfort. I'm genuinely perplexed when I read the passage in scripture where Jesus releases the 72 disciples to go into different parts of Jerusalem. He essentially tells them, take nothing with you. My first instinct is, what, not even a shaver, a toothbrush, cleanser? How about a wide tooth comb for my curly hair? We can't even relate to this idea, let alone all the other challenges that Jesus and scripture are often opening up to us. How about the fact that so many in the early church were selling their properties to pay for the believers? We just sold our house and ended up with a pretty penny. And believe me, this one hits home. Okay, our preoccupation with material possessions is not completely ungrounded. Society has changed too, right? I'm so grateful for the Australian superannuation scheme because I'm pretty sure that my eight-year-old daughter is not going to house me and her dad when we are unable to provide for ourselves, partly because her Indian grandmother has already called dibs, but also because she will probably only be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment in Sydney 20 years from now. She'll probably only be able to afford enough space for her future family. So our attachment to such things may be because we can't so easily rely on anyone else to assure our future living status. But material possessions are just the tip of the iceberg. We are so attached to our lifestyles. Grabbing a latte from our favourite coffee shop on the way to work, which I have no intention of changing just because I wrote it here. Strolling through our neighbourhood markets to take in the atmosphere and vibrancy. Drinking a glass of wine on a Friday night with a few too many slices of brie. God knows we deserve that creamy brie. Having the six-monthly girls getaway up the coast to rest and recuperate. The annual overseas holiday discovering the rustic alleyways of Europe fit for a postcard. Meeting a friend in the city to take in the latest musical or play. It's no wonder we struggled with lockdown. For so many of us, we have been reliant on our lifestyles to bring us joy, pleasure, relaxation and satisfaction. This lifestyle is so ingrained into our being. We are attached to our jobs, our careers and our sense of purpose. We often tell ourselves that we immerse ourselves in our careers and jobs to provide for our families. But so often we have opportunities to pay off our mortgages faster so that we could take jobs that are less demanding on our families. But we don't. We like the status our jobs give us and the title we can drop at different social gatherings where we can quickly project to others what we want them to think of us, success, importance, significance. There is in part a tendency to fear and avoid death because it reminds us that this life we have on earth will end and we like this life we have on earth. We can't imagine that there might be blessings in heaven that would be greater than the bucket list of activities and experiences we've decided are the epitome of life. Yet there is so much of life to experience on earth. I still want to try pasta in Italy or see the northern lights, climb mountains and all that jazz. But if we are more overcome with the treasures of this world than we are with the one to come, we surely do not fully understand what is to come. 
Or maybe we haven't had enough of a taste of the kingdom life and the saviour to realise how good it will be. And we probably don't understand who this Jesus is and this Holy Spirit in us, because I'm sure we wouldn't crave for the things of this world if we grasped it all. For all of Jesus' earthly days, he never once ventured to a city simply to observe its beauty or to try its food. He only lived for 33 years. The acknowledgement of his short life didn't cause him to fit in as many experiences as he could. He didn't have an express bucket list because he wasn't attached to this life. See, our future and the degree to which we can handle what is to come is hugely dependent on how committed we are to this earthly life. Our attachment to this life changes how eternally relevant our actions are. Revelations 12.11 says, They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. As a gunning Pentecostal, I had heard the first part of this verse thousands of times. Only recently, I realized what this verse actually says. That critical to the equation of God's people overcoming the enemy was the fact that they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The scriptures continue in this theme with the Apostle Paul making a staggering statement. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. No, he wasn't suicidal. He wasn't depressed. He simply had a perspective of one who was not so attached to his life and all the goodness he could gain from it. He was more attached and connected to Christ than anything this life could offer him. In Luke 14 verse 26, Jesus is recorded as saying in one of the most confronting pieces of scripture, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. At first sight, we might be confused. Is this Jesus speaking or the enemy? Okay, so Jesus isn't being literal when he says hate. He is saying that if we are more attached to our relationships here on earth and even our own lives, we cannot be disciples. This is one of those verses that fly in the face of the mythical, meek and mild Jesus. Matthew 5 verse 29 to 30 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. During my seasons of songwriting, I have often wondered if blindness enhances songwriting abilities. After all, there are musicians that are unable to see and they seem to so much more connect with the sense of hearing. Apparently, there is scientific evidence to support this. In place of visual senses, the brain rewires the other senses to be enhanced. Is this what Jesus means in the above passage? It would be better to be seemingly disadvantaged in this life with one working eye if it could advantage your faith. Just as the sense of hearing is advantaged by the loss of sight, there is nothing more important than our faith and relationship with Jesus. There is plenty in scripture that displays clearly what it looks like to have a life that is detached from the pleasures and comforts of this world. And often our journey toward resilient faith is one that seeks to disconnect those things that we have depended on for the kind of satisfaction that only God 
and the richness of his kingdom could provide. The weight of it all. Based on historical events, Paul is thought to have been beheaded. Peter was apparently crucified upside down. James, the son of Zebedee, was most likely executed. Andrew was said to be crucified. Thomas supposedly pierced with spears. Matthew was stabbed to death. Simon the Zealot was apparently killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. And Matthias, who replaced Judah, is said to have died by burning. Besides demonstrating the myriad of gruesome deaths available on hand in that era, the martyrdom of our spiritual ancestors speaks to us a critical truth. They declare something that our positive modern church cultures are too scared to insinuate. This gospel is worth dying for. The value of the gospel is so great that life itself is worth sacrificing. Have you had a look in the mirror lately? Have you reflected on who you are? Because you may see Tom, Jane, Nick or Sophie, a face that you've been staring at for all your life. But according to scripture, you are a dynamic testimony of Christ. Somewhere along the way, we have been distracted. We started to believe that our doctrines, our churches, our conferences, our morals and values and a blessed life were the greatest testimony of Christ to this world. Yes, all these things may tell a portion of the story of Christ's goodness, but the word says that we are the vehicle through which Christ touches this world. We are the demonstration of his incomparable grace. We are his living testimony. What happens in us, our ability to endure, our ability to live out the fruit of the Spirit in the face of hardship, this is the testimony of Christ, the gospel and his goodness. When we give up on Christ in any form, whether it's whole or partial rejection of his involvement, we make a bold, detrimental statement. This faith is not worth it. But when we persist through anything this world throws at us, uncompromising in our desire to know Jesus, resisting the temptation to be angry, to blame, to judge, slander, spread false witness and covet, we declare something in our actions that our mouths will never have to verbalize. This faith is worth everything. We also attest to the value of Christ and the gospel by how we live. Are we willing to abide even when our vision of him is blurred amidst hardship? Are we willing to keep walking alongside him even when he takes us in a direction we don't like? Is this faith enough of a revelation that truly nothing would deter us from being fully consumed by him? Even if we were never to gain in this life for our faith, would we still follow him? The truth of the kingdom way is that we die before we truly live. We crucify the flesh. We put to death the old life. We take up our cross. We die now so that we can live forever. All that must die in us for the sake of Christ cannot be done without a faith that can handle it. A resilient faith is the only kind of faith. No other kind will do. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.